This episode features discussions and interviews around sensitive topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Hello, and welcome to a shiny new episode of the Problem With Men podcast. It goes without saying that we'd love you joining us to explore the different issues men face. Of course, it also takes a lot of time and costs a lot of money to put each episode together. So we've opened up a PayPal donation page. If you're able to spare a few coins, we'd really appreciate it. But if not, you could also help us hugely by sharing the podcast with a friend or two. You're listening to the Problem With Men podcast. In this episode, we're looking at body image. A recent survey by the Mental Health Foundation found that 3 in 10 UK men have felt anxious about the way they look. 1 in 5 men dressed in a way that hid their body. More concerning, though, is that more than 1 in 10 men surveyed had experienced suicidal thoughts and feelings because of body image issues. Men seem to be way behind the curve when it comes to body image awareness. Women are already deep into promoting body positive image, while we're still lingering behind without showing polished six-packs, buff bodies competing on reality shows, and hashtag gains filling our social media feeds. We all have days where our hair won't sit right or we feel a bit bloated, Having issues about our appearance is pretty normal. But what happens when those thoughts and feelings get a little too much? Everyone has a body image. I have a body image. You have a body image. A body image is simply our internal perception of what our body feels like, looks like, and how we think about our bodies. Viran Swami is a professor of social psychology at Anglia Ruskin University, and his main area of research is around body image and trying to promote healthier body images in different populations. But what we're really talking about here is whether or not people experience negative body image. And what we know is that historically women have, to a large degree, experienced high levels of negative body image. But in the last 10, 20 years, we also, we're also finding that men have increasingly experienced negative body image as well. Most psychologists studying body image will will talk about what's called the tripartite influence model. The tripartite influence model simply argues that there are three primary sources of of information um, or three primary sources where we get information about what is what are the ideals in a society. And in 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 childhood, that that source tends to be our caregivers or our parents. In adolescence, it tends to be our peers. Also in adulthood, also appears, but also but in, in in adulthood becomes mass media. We get most of that information by consuming different forms of mass media. Now those three different sources tell us what is ideal. They tell us what is attractive and they also tell us the consequences of what it means to to not be attractive. But beyond that they also tell us they also sell us a version of the body in which the body is inherently malleable. It's something you have a responsibility to constantly work on. You are expected to work on the body. And this and this ethos of what working on the body is almost so ingrained in us that to not work on the body almost feels inhuman, that you're somehow unhuman if you choose to not work on the body, not choose to not improve your body in some way. Now, all of that can result in negative body image. Um, It's the kind of gaining that information from these three different sources and then internalizing the ideals that we are told, we're sold um, as being ideal, um, internalizing those ideals and making comparison with those ideals, which leads to negative body image. One of the big issues is, is that the ideal body standards we're pushed to aspire to are rarely healthy. Well, I mean, the ideal body is unhealthy. 
I think I mean, that's the starting point of this conversation. Ideal idealized images of of what people look like are inherently unhealthy. I mean, if you if you look at the kind of idealized female figure, for example, at least in the West now, it's clinically underweight. It is by definition something that people can only attain through excessive dieting. Um, so by its very nature, these ideals that are being presented to us are unhealthy. And similarly with men, the kind of ideal that's being presented as being ideal for men, again, at least in Western societies, it's one that can only really be attained if you're willing to spend hours and hours in the gym, if you're willing to diet excessively, if you're willing to spend hours and hours on your on, on body work, essentially, to the detriment of, say, your work life, your social life, your relationships, and so on. And the idea that somehow these ideals are there to inspire us or kind of inspire us to be better versions of ourselves is simply not true. These ideals exist to make us feel inadequate. And of course, there is an incentive for making us feel inadequate. Well, definitely in Western society, our body ideals are mostly created and perpetuated via the mass media in order to sell lifestyles and products and to keep us wanting to keep us feeling less than perfect so that we still go out there and buy products and you know um it's it's part of the part of the sort of western ideology isn't it to always be improving on yourself you know from since the 70s or 80s when women were you know, uh, encouraged to work on the body with the Jane Fonda workouts and everything. And now, you know, in the second millennium, the pressure, you know, the market has squeezed about as much as it can out of women. So it's moved on to men. And men now also have disposable, lots of disposable income, just like women. And uh, men are being encouraged to groom more if you look back maybe 20 years ago, probably the amount of products available for men's hair care was was very limited. For example, beard care. Um, in, in my previous life, I was a hairdresser before I got into academia and there never existed such a thing as like grooming for men and their beards. But now it's a whole huge industry. So it's it's all tied to sort of con- consumerism and driving people to spend money and achieve these appearance ideals that's how that's how i see it because when you go to other countries uh, in other cultures i can't talk about every culture in the world because obviously i haven't researched it and i haven't been to a lot of cultures but speaking from um um knowledge about the countries that I've researched and that I've lived in, um, not it's not necessarily the same in all countries. However, the proliferation of the mass media through globalization, through modernization, uh, bringing ideas of Western, Western, Western ideas and um, Western body ideals, these kind of pressures to look a certain way, um, are infiltrating through the you know traditional cultural body ideals in in lots of other cultures and countries tracy thornbrow is a lecturer in psychology at the university of lincoln her doctoral research investigated beauty ideals among a rural nicaraguan population to see what affects our idea of body image i think i was pleasantly surprised to find that the default isn't to be unhappy with your body um that there is possible to not have a, an appearance 
that re reflects uh, a socially constructed appearance ideal and still be happy with your body. People in um, the communities where we were carrying out our studies, where we were working, obviously, just like here, people have got all sorts of body sizes and shapes, yeah? Some people are bigger, some people are slimmer, some people are curvy, some people are tall, some people are short. Um, but within those communities, whatever people look like, they loved themselves and they were proud of their bodies and they dressed however they liked to show off their bodies. Um, there wasn't this, um, there isn't this kind of like judgment on people because they look a certain way. Um, um, unfortunately, with the influence of increasing influence of Western media, um, that might be beginning to change. The idea of being proud of how we look seems like such an abstract concept. Nicaragua is very interesting. So um, I carried out, we carried out a lot of research over a long period of time in Nicaragua. Um, so we were able to really understand the cultural context. Very often research will go into a country, um, collect some data and then go and analyze it without perhaps really understanding the context with, in which you collected that information. So we spent a long time in the field in Caribbean coast Nicaragua and really saw how people lived on a daily basis. And when we therefore um, collected the data, the quantitative data, so the kind of um, studies that you know we do in the West where we get people to um, give their opinions of um, images to rate them, how attractive they are, or to answer questionnaires, things like that. So when we um, when we use these methods, we found um, what we found was kind of difficult to explain with the the ways we'd measured it. So we went in thinking that we were going to make a comparison between um, villages with and without electricity, but there seems to be in that particular cultural setting some like com um how do you say overlap between men um seeking out certain types of media because it shows certain types of representations of men and uh those representations of men having an effect on on Nicaraguan men's ideas about what they should look like so in other words it's like um, we, we postulated that there already was in place in that particular cultural group um, an idea about a man, a, a masculine, you know, an, the proper kind of man in that, in that culture should look a certain way, should be muscular, should look like he goes to work. Um, because in that particular context, a muscular body indicates someone who does physical work. So they go to work. In, in, in Nicaragua, there aren't people there aren't gyms uh, uh, maybe in the capital but in the small villages the people don't go to the gym so a muscular body connotes something else it connotes someone that goes into the field to work or has a job has a work doing farming or fishing or something like that so um yes men are watching media showing muscular body types they love action movies the men they're reported mostly watching action movies watching sport so they're already seeking out media that's particularly high on certain appearance um, standards for men. 
So I, th those kind of two factors are sort of um, supporting each other. But on the other hand, although they like to have a muscular body, they don't have um, poor body image. Men are generally happy with their bodies, even if they might pick an image that shows they want to be more muscular attitudinally. So when we talk about body image and how you've got those different components, they don't feel unhappy with themselves. So why do body image issues affect some Western men? We call it internalisation, where a person has in their mind this mental template of what they think they should look like, usually a template that they've they've constructed based on what they've seen in media imagery and then thinking that they need to achieve that that template in order to be happy in order to be successful in order to have a partner in order to be attractive yeah so it's this idea of believing you need to have that body type in order to be all the things that you want to be so it's maybe less about being exposed to images of different body types and more about being constantly told we're not good enough, that we need to change. Viran Swami again. I think the bigger problem is that we exist in a society that constantly tells us that we're deficient, that's constantly bombarding us with idealised images, whether it's on social media or in advertising on television and magazines. We are constantly being shown what are idealised images and being told we're being sold a version of reality in which we are told that we are somehow inadequate. And beginning to talk critically about those societal changes that are required is much more important because then I think you free the individual to make individual choices about what they want to do with their own body while also deconstructing and dismantling the structures in society that lead to negative body image in the first place. I mean, like, like in, the, in the 1970s, there was a... A, 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 a version of, of an argument which was put forward, which was simply that there are vested interests in society, the advertising industry, the beauty industry and associated industries, which have a vested interest in making us all feel deficient because they are trying to sell us something. Um, if you feel deficient in your appearance, you're going to go out and buy some new clothes or some new makeup or some new shoes or change that appearance. And that is inherently the issue that we're talking about here. I think focusing on the individual removes that agency from from people and says to individuals you can change when actually what we should be talking about is whether or not we should change why do we accept this idea that feeling anxious feeling dissatisfied feeling um, um even to some levels clinically debilitating experiences of, of of negative body image are acceptable i mean whenever someone feels like they feel experiencing for example depression or depressive symptoms we would suggest to them you should get some help you should seek professional help whereas when we talk about body image it's almost acceptable that we accept that large swathes of the population experience negative body image without requiring any form of professional or non-professional help. So we're told we're not good enough and we're bombarded with things that promise quick fixes. But what extremes might we go to? So basically, one thing about me, which I'm very open about, is I actually have a condition called Asperger's syndrome. So I'm on a, like a good bit of medication. I have been from almost about five years of age. And you know, I've always been I've always been medicated for the for the condition. And I know one of the I can't mind which you know pill it is that I have to take for it. One of the side effects of it is you know you just never lose your appetite. You're always hungry. You're always you know nearly checking the cupboards just to see just to see what there is. 
Josh Hewitt struggled with his weight and negative body image issues since childhood. You know, there was in our schools, there was a, there was the football teams. You know, there was the rugby teams, and I, I you know the way I have to like, oh, I don't even want to try this because I don't fit into the mold whatsoever. So I struggled greatly with body confidence issues. You know, like you know when I was maybe in high school, I was buying, say for example, one of the shops in the shopping centre, and in, in first year, which is our year eight, I was already buying, <clears throat> excuse me, buying you know like large clothing. And, like you stood in the mirror and just looked at yourself and. You know, you judge this, you judge that, and you're like, I know with myself, you know, I was like looking in the mirror and I was like, you know, at that age, I was, you know, right with my trail of thought, I was like, you know, just thinking to myself, like, you're a mess, you know, what have you done to yourself? Why have you got here? How have you got into this position? And all the, all the thoughts run through your head when you were just looking in the mirror, brushing your teeth, you know, something as simple as that. It was brutal, like, because I, I obviously as a kid suffered very badly with mental health problems and then whenever you saw yourself you know you know and doubting yourself you're like oh well this is just making it 10 times worse and you know there was times I didn't leave the house because it was unwell with the mental health but I also didn't want people to I didn't want people to actually see me. As Josh's body image issues developed he sought out increasingly drastic solutions. So basically what happened to me was I was trying every diet under the sun from, you know, eating three, four hundred calories a day to intermittent fast and, uh, you know, a juice fast. And then even to the point where I was actually, if I eat something, I was just bringing it back up again by force. You know, I tried literally everything. And I remember one day I just, whether it came up in an article or something about the dangers of it which probably should have alarmed me first of all I remember I was like oh wait so I read into like obviously didn't read about maybe someone passing away or someone being seriously injured I read like oh and it was to apparently get weighed off in a week or two weeks or something like that and I was like right you know I back then obviously can't stick a diet obviously can't stick this can't stick that so I'll buy these so there were only like like three or four pound off eBay and then they were like you know, extreme fat burner or extreme off fat burners, extreme diet pills, you know, get weighed off in two weeks or something. It was something like obviously false promises. And I was like, okay, I'll try these. Basically, that's basically the way my head went. I, I, I wasn't even concerned what was in it. I didn't even care what was in it. I just cared about the way I looked and the way I wanted to look. And oh, there's nothing telling me otherwise, if you know what I mean. Despite being aware of the risks, the promises of fast results meant nothing was going to stop Josh. But it didn't go well. Say I was sitting on a seat, television was on, was watching something, and then like stood up to go and make a make a you know a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. And I was like, whoa, you know, just sit back down again for a wee second. Like I never get a light head, never have before that, and never have had since. But, you know, I, I just got up and I was like, oh my goodness, I need to sit back down again. So I sat back down again and got up again. I was like, whoa, this is, this is throwing me back down here. So I sat back down again. And then, like, say, for example, walked to make a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and just started getting this, like, pounding headache, you know, in between my eyes. But, like, not just a headache, but, like a standard headache. It was, like, almost felt as if someone had a screwdriver and they were twisting a screw out or a screw in, you know. It was really, like, sharp, almost like it was a nerve or something like that. And then I remember then as well, like, you know, 
I forget the I completely forget that word for what it is, but it was whenever your chest it was you could feel your heart pounding and it was almost like, is this gonna come out? You know, is this actually gonna make a hole through my chest? Because there was times it was just like the energy you had, but the pain that you had in your chest as well at times, and then just you were out for a walk and you were just like and this is just a straight road, not uphill, not downhill. There was times you were just having to hold onto a wall or onto a fence to balance yourself. After only a couple of days taking his online diet pills, Josh was suffering severe side effects. And I was only about four days into the tablets, hence why I threw them out after that. Because then at that point, they became terrifying. Uh, yeah, so at that point, I was like, no. I think it sort of wisened me up, if you know what I mean. I was like, no, these, they, this isn't normal. Like, you know, it's whenever I think you're, like your proper trail of thought the way it should be kicked in. I was like, you know, these, this isn't good. Like, I need to throw these out because I think the last thing I wanted was my mum to come in and wake me up for, for whatever I was doing and, you know, me being cold in bed, like, and something that happened to me, you know, like, I was just, I was just gone. So I think uh, what I done was like, okay, I don't want that to happen, nor do I want my parents to actually know that I've been on these tablets and that I've actually been, because, like, there literally could have been anything in them and that's the scariest thing. So, I was like, no, I just, I just need to get rid. I just need to get rid. Basically, it was the way my head was back then, you know. And I was so happy to take them, so excited to take them until I realised, like, oh my goodness, I actually feel horrific on these, like, you know. And I, you know, you think back now at it, like now about three or four years later, and you're like, like, what would have happened if I took the two week dose? Not, I know nothing good would have happened, but if I was feeling that ill after those three or four days, like, what would I have felt like after two weeks? Would I have still been here in two weeks? Would I still be, you know, alive? Would I, would I be seriously injured? Would something have happened to me from one of the ingredients? Dodgy diet pills and extreme diets are on the more accessible end of the spectrum when it comes to people desperately trying to improve the way they look. Over recent years, there's been another worrying trend. The American Society of Plastic Surgeons reports that male cosmetic procedures, both surgical and non-surgical, rose 29% between the year 2000 and 2018. From muscle enhancement to tummy tucks, facelifts to hair transplants, more and more men are going under the knife in the search of perfection. One area of growth is in limb lengthening. I'm Dr. Maboubian. I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, who specializes in limb lengthening and deformity correction, as well as uh, cosmetic height lengthening. From his office in Burbank, California, Dr. Mabuvian is one of the leading specialists in making people taller. You know, I get people from all sorts of life and all different types of ages, but the most common type of patient that I get are uh, guys that are in their... 30s uh, uh, who are shorter than average. Most of my patients are shorter than average anyways. I mean, uh, you know, this procedure of uh, uh, the height lengthening where people become taller uh, is designed more for uh, people to, you know, kind of get out of their uh, short stature that, uh, uh, that they, you know, that they have a stigma of. So, um, I have people, you know, from uh, around the world that come in, do their consultations and come in to get this procedure done uh, just to grow, you know, a few few inches, which makes a huge difference in their life. You know, if you look at someone, uh, 
with, uh, you know, let's say they're flat feet and they wear a uh, one inch heel, you can tell their difference in their height. Uh, so when they when they grow uh, two or even three inches, it makes a big difference for them. A word of warning, though, those extra inches don't come cheap. The the total cost of the surgery, which involves the surgeon's fee, the hospital fees, the cost for the implants, uh, as well as anesthesia. And, you know, it really depends on whether you're doing your femurs versus your tibias. The tibias tend to be uh, a little bit more expensive due to the uh, technicality and uh, duration of the procedure. Uh, but typically, it's uh, anywhere from 70 to 90,000 US dollars. Nor can it be described as a quick fix. Well, I mean, getting your bones broken is going to be painful no matter what. Uh, however, we do give uh, enough pain medications to make all of our patients nice and comfortable. Uh, we get them started on physical therapy and get them moving. Once the swelling has kind of calmed down, uh, which usually takes about a week to two weeks, then, you know, the pain kind of subsides. Uh, then you take on the uh, pain that comes from the stretching, and uh, which is due to the lengthening. So as you lengthen, you know, you get this stretching type of pain, which is a little bit different. Um, but people that are more flexible do really, really well, and their pain is uh, pretty well controlled. I've had, uh, I've had patients that only take Tylenol after their surgeries, but I've also had uh, patients that uh, need the stronger uh, narcotic pain medications. Uh, at least for the first two to three weeks after the surgery. And with any surgical procedure, there is always a risk involved. So we account for any possible complications because I've been doing this for over 10 years and I've dealt and seen all sorts of different complications. Uh, just as with any other surgeries, there's a risk of, <clears throat> there's a risk of infection. There's a, so we give antibiotics for that to make sure that that doesn't happen. There's a risk of developing blood clots after the surgery. So we put the patients on blood thinners while they're lengthening. So that usually takes about three months before uh, they hit the end of the eight centimeters. Uh, so they're on blood thinners during that time. Uh, there's a chance that, you know, they may not develop enough bone. So we make sure that they take plenty of uh, vitamin D and calcium and uh, have a proper diet to make sure that their bone growth uh, does well. Uh, you know, there's, there's a few other minor complications, but again, we account for all that stuff. And, you know, I see my patients every two to three weeks uh, to make sure that they don't develop any complications. One thing that slightly troubled me about Dr. Mabuvian was his use of social media to promote his surgical options. In fact, he's become somewhat of a social media celebrity, with tens of thousands of people following him on Instagram and TikTok where you can often see him proudly sit next to his patients in the before and after pictures. One worry I had was that maybe this kind of marketing would potentially promote body image issues. No, I don't think my marketing uh, promotes having uh, these types of issues. I think it's out there. I think people come to me because of the uh, issues that they have and the way society uh, looks at people that are shorter. Uh, so... You know, I provide a solution. You know, I'm not uh, I'm not there to uh, discourage people uh, for for their height. I'm I'm offering them a solution. Uh, and again, this this surgery is not for everybody. They have to uh, 
be ready to undergo a, a long recovery period. They have to have the finances for it, uh, and they have to be uh, motivated to undergo the procedure. So, you know, they're the ones that come and uh, seek uh, my services, uh, but I just put myself out there and let people know that they actually have an option because not many people know that this surgery exists. And that's kind of my goal is to let uh, people know that they do have an option, that they don't have to live with being short for the rest of their life. Certainly, while well, Dr. Mabuvian is using social media to his advantage, the stigma against short guys is real. We have common insults for short guys. Memes circulate around social media about how short guys are less manly or less successful. Female dating profiles on apps like Tinder list height restrictions like fairground rides. Imagine the outcry if a guy posted a maximum weight requirement for dates. So while insecurity and negative body image might start as a psychological issue, fed by societal ideals, surgery offers a relatively simple solution. There is a, a psychological aspect to being short. And yes, this is one of the surgeries that you can actually cure that psychological problem with surgery. It's actually one of the only types of surgeries that could cure that uh, mental uh, aspect of it. Uh, but yes, there is, a, and again, time and time, I've seen my patients who are depressed and you know they lack self-confidence due to their height. And after they go through the procedures, all that vanishes and they become just a completely different person. Uh, they have this amazing self-confidence about themselves and this willingness that uh, they can accomplish anything in life after after they go through the procedure. Um, you know, going through the procedure is not easy. Uh, the recovery is, is, is a long recovery. Um, they have to be on a walker for like three to four months. Um, you know, they have to constantly do therapy and stretch on a daily basis to make sure that they have a good outcome. So once they've gone through such a difficult uh, recovery period, once they're out of it and they've recovered, uh, I, I think they have the sense that they can accomplish anything after that. So while the hunt for the perfect body can lead to expensive or risky solutions, there is another risk too, that we simply head in the opposite direction. I think men end up going in two directions on this, so maybe sometimes even at the same time in their lives. Uh, on the one hand, we are uh, drawn to try to keep keep our bodies uh, in that ideal state or, or make our bodies get into that ideal state and we become obsessed with working out, say, uh, or obsessed with dieting or with the food we eat, um, becoming almost narcissistic in terms of how often we're checking our body image. Um, yeah, so there's a, there's a path that goes to try to meet that ideal that's not very healthy. And I think there's another path where we give up, essentially. Uh, we, we, we define ourselves as uh, unable to, to meet that, that ideal and almost um, go in the opposite direction of not being healthy. Uh, we become couch potatoes is a term you know, we have here in the United States anyways, where we're just going to watch TV. We're, we're not going to pay that, attention, that much attention to our, to our body or to our health overall. And there's a lot of evidence that men do not uh, go to the, you know, take care of their bodies in terms of going to the doctor regularly. Uh, and uh, I know from experience with my wife as a senior fitness instructor that a lot of the, the people that go to uh, senior fitness classes tend to be much more women than men. 
Uh, and those men, I think, sort of have defined themselves as unable to, to, to meet that standard. And so we, we abandon health altogether. So I think those are the two unhealthy paths we often take of trying too hard to be super strong and, and giving up altogether. Ed Fraunheim is co-author of Reinvented Masculinity. He points out that as well as the obvious risks to our well-being, striving for the body beautiful has some hidden dangers too. They include the, the health nutritional risks of um, getting hooked on this lifestyle or diet that's uh, about protein powders or, or nutritional supplements that may not be completely safe. Um, you know, it can get it can extend to taking steroids um, as a means to to you know getting that perfect body shape. So there's the sort of physical health risks, I think, but there's also the, the social health risks. And, and kind of psychological health risks. Uh, on the psychological side, you don't ever become comfortable in your own skin as a guy because of this pressure to be this perf- have this perfect body. You know, and we talk, I mean, in some ways, this is an issue that's been much more discussed among women. And I personally felt it like feeling, you know, relatively unworthy as a guy because I was skinny growing up. You know, I was relatively athletic, but not in that kind of top tier of, of athletes. Uh, you know, in my high school or college, even intramurals uh, games. So there's a psychological cost of, of, of trying to feel like you're, you're trying to meet that standard that's kind of impossible to reach. And I think there's also a social cost, too, at times. You know, there's there was recently an interesting article in The New York Times about a lot of the current younger men who are these body image or body building icons in the social media world. And yet their own social lives are very cramped. You know, they don't have a lot of friends or deep friendships because they're spending so much time in the gym. You know, they're trying to work out uh, and keep their body so so perfect that they, you know, they, they don't have the sort of relaxed friendships and social encounters that we know are healthy. And, and the irony is, as much as we talk about a healthy, strong body, you know, it's pretty clear that the research on long lives and happiness um, shows that the most important factors for health and and well and longevity are your social ties, and so if we let our our focus on our body image get in the way of friendship of connection, we're really not serving our our, our own um, vitality in the long run. If you're enjoying this podcast, support our work by leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. The Problem With Men podcast. So while we should learn to accept the bodies we have and the things our bodies allow us to do, it's easier said than done, especially in cases where people might have body dysmorphic disorder or BDD. Jamie Fusner is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Toronto. Body dysmorphic disorder is a psychiatric disorder where people misperceive that certain aspects of their appearance are defective in some way or imperfect. And generally they think that these parts of their appearance make them look ugly and disfigured. And these are things that other people either don't see when they look at them, or if they see some kind of imperfection, it looks very small or minor. But the people with body dysmorphic disorder perceive these and they believe that they're prominent and they have these preoccupations, or you could call them obsessive thoughts about these appearance features where they think about them a lot, it's difficult for them not to think about it, it intrudes on in their life, 
And they have a lot of extreme emotions that are associated with it. So usually feeling down, feeling depressed about it, uh, feeling anxious, especially around other people, feeling shame. And then they do behaviors to try to fix their appearance or check their appearance in some way to try to make it better or to try to see if you know maybe it looks a little bit better today uh, or they just try to hide it in some way or avoid being around other people. So it's this combination of these, this misperception, they have these obsessive thoughts and then they do these behaviors repeatedly to try to do something about their appearance. And body dysmorphic disorder can be a very severe disorder in fact, the suicide attempt rate is about 25%. So about 25% quarter of people will try to end their life uh, because of body dysmorphic disorder. And they often are ma- majorly effective and affected in terms of their functioning, not being able to, to work or to work well or to have meaningful relationships or they're not doing well in school. And it is a relatively common problem. I started to spend up to 10 hours a day in the mirror um, just trying to perfect these these uh, th- these so-called flaws uh, that I thought I had and um, and it was you know it's it's such a personal thing the way you look um, and when it's in your mind as well and you're trying to, to stop these negative feelings from coming through um, it, it can it can really really um, develop into something quite nasty. Danny Bowman started having issues with the way he looked after moving schools. So I was 14 years old um, and I just moved from um, kind of a small uh, school, like sort of where I lived, to a, to a kind of inner city school. And I just looked at everyone else and I thought that everyone was just so much better than me and everyone looked so much better than me. Um, and I felt this immense pressure to try and improve the way I looked and improve the way I was. Um, and that started, you know, with small signs of kind of trying to improve my appearance slightly in the, in the mirror, um, and then developed into something bigger as that kind of pressure increased. And at the same time, I was kind of scanning Facebook as well, um, and kind of looking at everyone else's lives and I just felt everyone looked better than me everyone was living a more exciting life than me um, and I needed to improve you know my own um, so I it got to a point when I was spending hours every single day in the mirror um, trying to perfect my appearance BDD is a condition associated with obsessive compulsive disorder so it's about 1 in 40 people have body dysmorphic disorder and many of the people who have it don't know that they have it. They believe that they just have a physical problem with their appearance and that their reaction is kind of how anyone would react when they had such a physical defect. A lot of people have concerns about something related to their face or their head area. So kind of for the neck up is actually a very common part of the appearance that's disturbing. And skin is actually the most commonly um, common part of the appearance that people have concerns about, followed by hair and nose, but it can really be any part of the appearance. So an example, common example might be that somebody uh, perceives that they have, let's say, very prominent um, pock marks on their skin. Maybe they had some had some acne and then they thought they got some scarring from it. And they think that these pock marks make their skin look uh, really ugly, you know, very rough and um, disgusting looking 
noticeable, you know, from a far distance. And so they might check the mirror frequently. They might be in the mirror, perhaps up to several hours a day, uh, looking at it, looking at it from different angles. They might be doing things to try to cover up the pockmarks, like using products, skin products. They might be consulting with dermatologists about it or doing internet research about it. And they might spend uh, several hours a day thinking about it. So that's, that's a common example. I'd normally wake up at half six in the morning, um, usually after very little sleep the night before. Um, I'd go to the bathroom. Um, I'd then probably get stuck in the mirror for a good two hours, uh, looking at myself, scrutinizing my skin, um, normally doing, putting face creams on repetitively, scrubbing my teeth, um, you know, relentlessly for a, a good 20 minutes, um, you know, styling, restyling my hair, uh, you know, picking at my, my weight, trying to get rid of any food that I might have in my body. Um, and, and that was just the first two hours of the, the day. Um, and then I'd usually go, you know, to, to the main living area and, and, and take, you know, 200 photos of myself um, and then pull my appearance apart, um, zo- zoom in on, on, on pictures I take, then delete them, see a floor, then go back to the bathroom, uh, you know, try to perfect that floor. Um, and then just that over and over and over again for the entirety of the day without going outside for fresh air because I couldn't because I was worried that people would would think I, uh, you know, I, I looked odd or I would terrify them because the way I looked. Um, I mean, it really was, and you know, even talking about it now, it, it it feels it's making me feel quite tired. I mean, you know, I would go to bed at normally about half eleven, you know, in the evening, and like I said, wake up at six thirty a.m. in the morning, usually with very little sleep in that period. But I'd go to bed anyway, um, and after such a long period of time, you know. It, it really kind of broke me. For Danny, it got to the point where he couldn't cope anymore. If you can imagine your biggest critic in your head for six months continuously telling you you're inadequate, that would probably be the best way of capturing the six months that I experienced. Um, And then within that moment um, where I, you know, decided to make the decision that I did, it, it felt, it was like being trapped with, with, in a room with, with no doors available to, you know, to, to, to exit. It, it felt like I'd kind of used up all my options. I'd tried desperately. And even in that moment, I still felt like I had failed I still felt like, oh, well, I haven't achieved the perfection I set out to achieve. Um, so I can't really go back to living a normal life because, well, I, I failed in my, my efforts to, to perfect my appearance enough um, 
to, to live a normal life. So even in that moment, and I think a lot of people with BDD, a lot of men and women with BDD feel this way. It's, it's you, you are constantly, you constantly feel trapped and feel like you, you can't get out of this mindset and this way of thinking. It got to the point, um, I remember it was a, I remember the day very, very, very clearly. It was a very, very rainy day in the northeast of England, um, which anyone who's a who knows about the northeast of England, it's not abnormal for to have a rainy day. Um, but I remember just laying on my bed and and just thinking, you know, th- there's just no way out of this. It's it's you know, ten hours every single day of my life. I'm I'm spending stuck in a mirror. Um, I'm not living. Um, everyone else is getting on with their lives. I, all of these thoughts were kind of going through my head of, well, you know, what am I doing here? Um, you know, I'm not living. I'm not achieving anything. You know, why am I here? Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I, 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 instead of reaching out for help at that moment, which I, which I should have done, I um I tried to take my own life. Um, luckily, my uh, my my mum found me, and I was rushed to to the local A and E department um, and given the care I needed. If you're experiencing issues with your body image or think you might have BDD, then don't suffer in silence. There are links to resources on our website at theproblemwithmen.co.uk. To people who have never experienced BDD or body image issues, it can seem like trivial nonsense. But the struggles are real and can affect all aspects of a person's life. Jamie Fusner again. It is. People suffer so much from it. And another kind of layer of suffering that people have from it is that most other people don't really understand them because these are people that if you saw people with BDD, most of these people, they just, they look, they have normal appearance, you know, they, they don't have anything major about their appearance that other people can notice, you know, or they might have some minor things because nobody's appearance is hundred percent perfect, but um, it makes it very hard because these people are suffering from perceiving that they look so ugly but the people around them don't notice. And then if they try to talk to their friends or family about it, a lot of times they don't totally understand because they're like, well, what? I don't understand what you're concerned about because your skin looks fine and they don't see it. And then they don't really trust the person because they think the person is just trying to make them feel better. And by lying to them about it, uh, or, or they, they think that other people think that they're vain or narcissistic that they care too much about their appearance, that they shouldn't care so much about appearance. They shouldn't think about it as much, but they can't stop thinking about it because their brain won't let them. So they suffer. There's so much, um, you know, distortion of reality in the imagery we see these days, um, both in terms of, you know, the lighting that's used, the photography, the um, editing of photos, um, but also in terms of the the people that are very visible, the celebrities, the influencers, um, they have a very different set of resources than the average person. They may have personal trainers, they may have hairstylists, they 
um, may have personal chefs even. And, you know, most of us just can't compete with that. We are not going to ever have those resources. And it's not our job to look good, right? A lot of the people that are highly visible, it is their job essentially to look good. And, um, and, and it kind of, I think, confuses so many of us and leads us to think that we should spend more time and energy on the pursuit to physical per- perfection than, than we really have or really should be spending. Dr. Charlotte Marquet is a professor of psychology and director of the Health Sciences Center at Rutgers University. She also recently published a book, Being You, the Body Image Book for Boys. And this is why we focus so much on um, kids and adolescents and have concerns because they often can't sort of sort through this in the way that adults are more capable of, right? So you and I can acknowledge that this is sort of messed up. This is not realistic. This is a impossible standard, but, but younger people don't have those same sort of metacognitive skills and they can't necessarily think through and reason through um, sort of this dilemma in the way that adults can. Charlotte has been researching body image for 25 years and has become alarmed at the way body image issues are impacting younger and younger people. A study conducted just a few years ago showed that even six-year-old boys were saying that they thought they would look better if they had muscles, if they had more muscles. So 50% of six-year-old boys, I mean, six-year-olds can't really develop muscle mass. So this is kids starting to think about these things Uh, for whatever reason, before it's even really physically possible, it really suggests that this is becoming pretty deeply rooted as a concern for for young people. We we say when you are unable to engage in sort of your regular life in the way that you want to, because you're consumed by other thoughts or worries, that that's in some ways the, uh, the absolute definition of mental illness. And so even if, and this is what we see in boys and men more often than girls and women, even if um, inherently the behaviors are healthy, like running or weightlifting, um, if they take over all that mental space, then it isn't healthy anymore. Yes, there was actually a a study in the States recently that 40% of teenage boys have used clinically untested supplements like protein powders. So we're starting to see it becoming really mainstream for even young people um, to go to fairly extreme lengths to to try to look a certain way. And, And that can be very risky. It's so much worse in the U.S. too, because we, we don't regulate, um, our food and drug administration does not regulate these sorts of products. And, in the UK, there's more attention to this. So the likelihood of products available being safer is, is higher, but um, there's still not a lot of research looking at how different supplements affect growing people. And we um, you know, want young people, especially in the midst of puberty, to, to not disrupt that normal development by taking unnecessary products into their bodies. One of the areas of Charlotte's research has touched on how our behaviour around food and body can affect our kids, even if to us something is quite subtle. 
And so it, it seems to emerge really as young kids become social, as they start to interact with peers um, and they become more aware of the world around them. I mean, I think parents need to be aware of the likelihood of body dissatisfaction among both their sons and daughters, and that the seeds for this dissatisfaction are sown in early life, but that often this really manifests during puberty, during adolescence. And there are things that parents can do to try to prevent body dissatisfaction from emerging. Um, And some of that has to do with just modeling a healthy relationship with food and um, positive body image ourselves. Well, many of us grew up in households where parents maybe were on diets often, you know, always trying a different eating regimen of some sort or another, or often um, disparaging their own bodies, right? So I feel so fat or do these these genes make me look big or whatever. Um, you know, we, we grew up hearing adults saying things like this. And so it feels very normal and natural to say it, yet it can be somewhat toxic. We really want our kids to have a healthy relationship with food so that they're not worrying about food, but enjoying it and nourishing themselves appropriately. And we also don't want them feeling self-conscious about their body and that it's normal to hate your body. That's not really a a healthy way to go through life. And for many of us adults, that means kind of relearning some of this or reframing, um, working on our own mental health a little bit and being more self-compassionate and self-accepting and appreciating that our bodies are imperfect and most people's are. And that's not something to feel bad about. So it seems kids that are growing up and learning about the world are incredibly at risk of developing problematic body image issues. It feels like it would be a great idea for someone to write a book to help young boys understand their body, how they see themselves, and how to have a healthier view of their body. Yeah, you can go to uh, thebodyimagebookforboys.com and you can find um, Being You, The Body Image Book for Boys. And um, I think it's really the only book out there that really focuses on body image and and boys. So the focal point is body image, but it really is a resource that addresses both uh, psychological and physical health more broadly. Um, I think we really need to work on normalizing conversation about health among boys and men in general, um, that most Boys and men just aren't socialized to be really comfortable um, talking about their health or getting help when they have a health problem, and that's to their detriment. So um, as a psychologist, it's incredibly important to me that um, messages about what health is, what you should do if you have concerns about your health, um, who you should talk to, those sorts of things I want. I want out there in the public discourse much more than they currently are. As for the rest of us, Ed Freinheim has a few ideas. In our in our, the book that I co-authored, we talk about these five C's from moving uh, from a more confined, conventional set of masculine beliefs to a, what we call a liberating sense of your manhood or your masculinity. And you know, the first one is 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 curiosity. Like, can we be curious and, and question the norms that have been put out for us? Uh, and 
you know, I hope we can answer that, answer some of those questions and say, no, I don't necessarily think this is wise for us to obsess about being, you know, having a body like the rock, uh, say, um, and then, you know, the, the next one is about courage and can we be brave enough to say, you know, not just go in, into a burning building, say, or, or take financial risks, but take risks emotionally and, you know, explore our feelings and the way we've been wounded around some of these body images. Uh, which is begins the healing process. Um, and, you know, speaking of that, the next one is compassion. And that is about really self-compassion besides compassion for others. And that sense of like be, being kind to ourselves about our bodies and, our, and the, the extent to which we can build a, you know, create a, a body that is similar to that ideal or, you know, and, and realizing we're probably not going to get there given most of our lives experiences and what we, what, what, how much time we can spend on I'm working out. Um, the next one is connection where, you know, again, this is actually with the research shows that our social connections are more important to our long-term health than our body, you know, strength and being able to be, you know, looking like uh, a bodybuilder. And lastly, the, the C that we talk about is commitment. And can we kind of stick with this more uh, mature view of, of health and uh, self-worth and and and, bot, and our and body image, so that we can actually you know enjoy our bodies as you say and uh, feel whole in them. I'm pretty sure you know based on my research and the work we've done with my co-author on the psychology of men, uh, where we you know we are we we beat, we're, we're not easy on ourselves, and we one of the ways we beat ourselves up is around this question of our bodies, and it really uh, I hope we can take. Uh, a longer term view of body image so that we're addressing the issues of men at all ages and helping them feel you know, healthy and comfortable and whole in, in their bodies. Thank you for downloading and listening to this episode of the Problem With Men podcast. If you'd like to find out more information about any of the topics discussed in this episode, you can find help, resources, and extra reading on our website at the Problem With Men. .co.uk. Until next time, goodbye. The Problem With Men podcast is an Octopus Industries production, produced and presented by Chris Dodd and produced by Sandra Kabasinguzi.